You're listening to the best of the Martha Zoller Show. You can hear the show live Monday through Friday from 9 to 11 on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN and streaming at accesswdun.com. You can find all things Martha Zoller at marthazoller.com. get back to one of the questions that you guys texted in you said do political election polls influence voters to vote a certain way if you have polls showing a certain candidate is favored how will that influence other voters i do think people want to back a winner you know people want you know it takes a lot of guts to be the person that will vote for the guy that has one percent or two percent and especially if they keep showing up that way and there's no momentum now what we're seeing now is kind of a movement of candidates where you're starting to get some momentum it's still not enough to win against donald trump i mean i'm not fooling myself in that way but you're starting to see movement and the first votes will not be cast until mid-january and a lot can happen between now and then uh look i'm not wishing any bad thing on anybody but when you have elderly candidates uh six months or a year is uh something that you know something could happen that would change the makeup of everything that's why gavin newsom's kind of waiting in the wings and making everybody mad because he's supposed to be doing this debate with ron DeSantis, uh which now the democrat media structure is saying that's disrespectful to the president that gavin newsom would be uh you know debating a potential opponent but if everybody thinks that donald trump's going to be the guy then really Gavin Newsom debating Ron DeSantis is just a couple of guys that aren't going to win debating each other. And so I don't see why they would say it was disrespectful. But I do know why they say that, because they're afraid they're both going to look good. That the two of them who are policy wonks, young, attractive, with young families, are going to debate and they're going to show America what they could have versus what they're getting in Joe Biden. And I really think much more than Donald Trump. Joe Biden is the one that people are uncomfortable about. I know that the media wants you to think that it is it, that all of us are just horrified with Donald Trump. You know, I'm just kind of numb to Donald Trump at this point in time. And I think a lot of people feel that way. But I am horrified by the thought that Joe Biden, who, if you've noticed recently, Jill is by his side all the time. She is clearly going to meetings, being involved in things. She is showing up. She's not doing things independently. She is with him all the time to make sure he goes the right place, does the right thing, does all the kinds of things that are out there. I think that, you know, it's it's a real, you know, it kind of reminds me. And again, we didn't have social media. We've been through this before when Woodrow Wilson had a stroke. And the last two years of the presidency, his wife really ran the country because they were hiding from the American people the fact that he had had a stroke and he had not recovered yet. They knew he had a stroke, but he hadn't recovered yet. And you could do that back when you didn't have social media. John Kennedy, you know, everybody thinks John Kennedy was a philanderer, and he probably was, okay? But there are there is a lot of documentation that has now been declassified that would imply that he was sick more than he was philandering and that he made a decision 
to let people think he was a cad instead of letting people think he was sick. Same thing with uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt, in his last, everybody knew he had polio. It's not like he was hiding that, although he went to great lengths not to be pictured in his wheelchair. And that's why there was so much controversy about the Franklin Delano Roosevelt statue being in a wheelchair, okay? But his last term, everybody knew how sick he was when he ran for that last term, okay? But they let him run in 1944, knowing how sick he was. And then you see those pictures about a year later of him and Yalta negotiating this final deal uh, related to World War II in Europe. And he looked awful. And he had basically holed himself up in the White House and he was running everything himself. He wasn't letting Truman involved. He wasn't including anybody because he knew he was dying. Again, you could do that. You know, um, it's kind of like... I don't know if any of y'all seen the Dave movie, okay? But that's kind of the premise of this Dave movie is that everybody's hiding in plain sight that the guy was too sick, that he was not recovering from a stroke. So it's a real interesting situation because we have been here before. We just didn't have social media chronicling it. It's where North Georgia comes to talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. Michael Lynch is an associate professor of political science at the University of Georgia. Uh, he was one of my professors while when I went back to school. And we thought we'd talk a little bit about the debate and this sort of third-party movement and whether a third-party movement can have legs. Michael Lynch, thanks for being with me today. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So I'm sure you watch the debate. You're a political junkie. You you yeah. do all that sort of thing. Um, what what was your overall thoughts about if people, you know, singled themselves out or did a good job or a bad job? What were your thoughts? Well, um, given my job, I like people who talk about policy, and uh, I was impressed Um by Nikki Haley, I think, did a good job bringing policy back to the discussion and uh, making some good points. Um, so I, I think she did a good job. Um, um, Vivek did a good job of uh, being memorable. Um, as I looked at some poll numbers this morning, I was kind of curious to see what that impact was. Uh, I, I don't know that it helped him very much, but he was definitely uh, uh, someone new to everyone and definitely uh, uh, had some shining moments on the stage. So when you looked at those numbers, were there any changes or is it too soon to tell? Well, it's, you know, January 15th is all the way away, but um, the, a little bit to my surprise, DeSantis' numbers actually look better after the debate uh, and support for Trump is, is down quite a bit. So the race between DeSantis and Trump is uh, within the margin of error now if you look at head-to-head races, which is uh, surprising. Trump's been dominant and so far ahead for so long. I was, I was surprised to see those numbers that close. I thought that Governor DeSantis did what he needed to do to kind of uh, show that he was more than just, you know, the guy we've been seeing. He is a little stiff. I mean, he's not as comfortable talking about things, but he's good in certain situations. Like yesterday, you saw him in his role as governor because they've got a um, hurricane coming. And he's had a number of those situations he's had to deal with. And in those kind of situations, he's great. I mean, he gets out there. And he looks uh, presidential, if you will. He looks like he's in charge and that he's calm, cool, and collected. Yeah. And I, on the debate stage, he had the disadvantage of being uh, 
the front runner that was there. Uh, so I think that put a like, little extra pressure on him. Uh, I was a little surprised um, the other candidates didn't go after him a little more. They seemed to be focusing on Vivek a little bit more. But, um, um, yeah, he's, he's not super slow on the debate stage. But like you said, I think he's... Um, um, does well in situations like, you know, canceling all his events this week to make sure he's back in Florida for the, the incoming hurricane and he'll have some, some opportunities to show his leadership there. You know, Vivek Ramaswamy, I think, is very interesting. And I've had a couple of conversations with him and talked to his team a lot. And I, what I find interesting about is he's a very smart guy, very young. I mean, if you've amassed a $630 million fortune by the time you're 38, you're probably not a dumb guy. Okay? So he's very <laughs> smart. Um, he has accomplished quite a bit. I think he, while I like the fact that he's not one message and you just, that's all you hear. A lot of very schooled politicians, that's what they do. They have their one thing they go back to on everything. But sometimes when he starts pontificating about things, he scares me because it shows that he doesn't really understand the implications of what you say. Yeah, and I think that that showed itself on some of the comments he had about Ukraine uh, and some some of the economic comments I've seen him make at other times. Uh, you can tell he's new at this, at least this part of it. Um, one of the one of the numbers that really popped to me in the early poll I was looking at is among the people who thought he won the debate. Sixty percent of them still plan to vote for Trump. And you compare that to people who thought Nikki Haley was going to win or, pe- or people who thought Nikki Haley won the debate or DeSantis won the debate. Um, their majority of those people want to vote for that candidate. So I thought right. that was interesting that even people who thought he did well were still kind of seeing him as a, a Trump substitute or someone who had views similar enough to Trump that it wasn't wasn't a distinct difference. I loved the 50 second clip from Nikki Haley, and I've played it multiple times where she's talking about who caused this problem that we have with spending. And she said it was our Republicans and then named three people on the stage that had voted for that sort of thing. I think that's a great general election message. I don't know if that helps you in a Republican primary. Well, as uh, someone who teaches uh, (laughs) students about budgets and deficits, I was glad to hear someone uh, blame both parties because obviously that is how we got in this situation. Uh, No one party gets to raise spending or cut taxes by themselves. So um, that was refreshing for me as a teacher. Um, But it is one of those issues that um, both parties historically blame the other party. That's pretty successful uh, campaign strategy. It was it was. Again, like you said, uh, just having uh, giving a talk that I really like is not always a great way to win an election. It's so, true. So. It's like my I was uh, watching the Democratic debate in uh, February 2020 B.C. before covid uh, with my. Mm-hmm. Uh, with my uncle, who was 97 years old and an immigrant, okay, had immigrated here from India. And um, Mm -hmm. he was very liberal in his political leanings, really. And he'd tell you he was, he's passed away since then, but he said he had seen revolution and he knew what happened when the masses rise up, okay? And he didn't, he's liberal because he doesn't want that to happen here. But he asked me, if you had to vote for somebody on this stage, who would you vote for? Because he and mm-hmm. I have great had great political debates. And I said, the problem, Uncle Greg, is somebody that I would like in a Democratic de- debate uh, couldn't get through a primary. So the people that I like are the more moderate people. If, if I, I liked Amy Klobuchar. I liked 
the way she presented herself. And of course, you know, I like to see women get elected. That's kind of my thing. Mm -hmm. And so I like when women candidates stand out. But with all of this talk, you know, the no labels thing, I've talked to the no labels people. I've had a number of their yeah. fo- their folks on. They're going to have a real convention in April in Dallas. And they're talking about that they have polling, again, polling that says people are really unhappy with the thought of a Trump-Biden rematch and that there's a path if you can get on the ballot. That's the big if, because the one thing Democrats and Republicans agree on is they don't want anybody else on the ballot. If you can get on the ballot, they say there's a path for an independent to win. <laughs> well, uh, it's probably good to remind your listeners the last third-party candidate that won a presidential election was Abraham Lincoln. So uh, it's been a while. Uh, this has not yeah. been a successful strategy at all in modern times. And uh, usually I think, you know, conventional wisdom that I totally agree with is this would bleed into Biden votes and make it much more likely that uh, Trump would win the election if, if the matchup ends up being Trump-Biden. So I think I have this theory, and you can think it's crazy. But you think a lot of the things I think are crazy, but that's all right. We've, we've had a few classes together. I think the Democrats, the Democrats are a little unsure that Joe Biden's going to make it all the way to next year. And I don't mean he's going to die, but it's something's going to happen to where he can't be the candidate. Because generally, when you have the incumbent candidate, you have your convention early so you can have a long general mm-hmm. election cycle. And they're having their convention the last week of August next year, which is the absolute last week you can have it and Mm -hmm. still have the names on the ballot. Um, I think they did that because they're not sure, you know, if Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think there are, you know, more uncertainty about who, um, you know, uncertainty surrounding Trump with his legal issues, uncertainty surrounding Biden with age and you know, Trump's uh, much older than our average candidate historically, too. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of uncertainty about this election. Uh, and so that makes sense that uh, uh, I, I don't know that Joe Biden's going to be especially um, good at, at being on the campaign trail. That was something that he didn't really have to do in the last uh, election. He's gotten, so and he's kind gotten, of shortening that season might might make sense for the, for the reason you, you stated. And he's gotten so much worse at the podium. I mean, I, usually, you know, you. I mean, George Bush was not the greatest guy to get in front of people. But as time went on, he got better. He got better. He, he you know, he actually, in my view, wrote the best post-presidential book because his book, Decision Points, wasn't here's a biography of me. It was here are the 10 toughest decisions I had to make, the pros and cons, and why I made the decision I made. And I loved that, okay, because he really, I think, was doing things for the right reasons. I think we've, we are in a season where people are doing things for the wrong reasons. And I'm looking forward to getting out of it, if you want to know the truth. Well, uh, we have a long way to go until the twenty twenty four election. Uh, I gotta, I gotta make it through this entire semester before we start voting in uh, primaries and caucuses. Uh, That's right. And That's you right. know, this far out, there have been a lot of people who are leading in Iowa who uh, absolutely got nowhere close to the presidency. So, yeah, so uh, there's still a lot of, lot of uncertainty out there. Until the real votes are cast, we don't know what's going to happen. Michael Lynch, thank exactly. you so much for being with us today. Putting the talk in news talk. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. 
Dr. Trey Hood is here with me right now. He's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Georgia. Uh, He's been conducting research in American politics and policy since 1999, and he primarily focuses on Southern politics and election sciences, but he serves as the director of SPIA's Survey Research Center, and there was a new poll released this morning. Trey, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, uh, you know, the, we'll talk about the poll in a minute, but the biggest question I get from people in and that I have, that I have a hard time getting my head around with polling, is that the world has changed so much about how we contact people. And how do we, how do you, number one, get in touch with people? And then once you have however many respondents, 700, 800, 900, how do you just weight them so that you have as, an ac- as accurate of a poll as you can? Well, uh, first question first. Um, it's getting harder to get in contact with people. <laughs> you know, response rates for surveys are just in the, in the basement, really. And so it, it's, it requires more and more effort on our part to try to get in contact with enough people so that we're going to have a representative sample for our poll. Now, um, the polls we do for the AJC and still for a lot of, uh, a lot of other, uh, customers that we have are what are called live interviewer surveys. So someone is actually a real person on the phone calling, trying to make contact with someone. Um, but the polling industry is changing and we're going to have to change as well. There are many different modes you can use to poll people, including still live interviewer surveys, but you know, you can also use online polls. You know, one of the more uh, later innovations, it's not brand new, but more more recently, uh, text-to-web surveys. So someone would get a text message, they'd click on the link, it would take them to a survey online, and they can complete that survey. Or mixed mode, which, you know, would be a combination of one of those things. Now, you know, one of the things that has changed in the world, of course, is cell phone usage. You know, even... Even my parents, you know, don't have the kitchen landline anymore. So we're calling more and more cell phones. In fact, about 90% of the numbers we're calling now are cell phone numbers uh, to try to, again, get a representative sample. Um, but that causes other problems because, as we know, especially younger people, but people of any age, when they get a call from a number that they don't recognize, they just screen it out. They don't answer the phone call. So... It is getting harder and harder to get in contact with people. Um, and to deal with that, pollsters are using different methods to try to get around those, those problems. Um, now, the other question, so was, was that yes. anything else? Yeah, that answers that I mean, we could question. talk for hours about this. <laughs> I know, it's true. It's true. But then when you get the responses, um, right. do you have to weight them some way? How do you do that? Almost always, because uh, the the sample we get back after we complete our calling, in some ways, isn't going to exactly match the population we're trying to make inferences back to. So here's an example. Uh, you know, we know about how many young voters there are. I know that from looking at uh, the state's voter registration and, and voter history database, and we can so we can get pretty good numbers on that. We're always short on younger voters, say people in the 18 to 29-year-old age category. And so we do have to do what's called waiting on the backside, or 
you know, the different ways you can do this, we, we wait. And so what you're doing is that, you know, if you have fewer 18 to 29-year-olds than in your population you're surveying, you basically give those individuals uh, more weight. You know, so you weight them heavier and you downweight other people. Say we have too many people in the 65-plus age category. And so weighting can, can be quite complicated mathematically, but in, in, intuition-wise, it's pretty easy to understand that we're just going to give someone in the 18 to 29-year age, age category more emphasis or more weight, and we're going to give other people less weight so we can sort of balance out what our sample looks like in terms of what we know about the population. Um, and that's very critical in, in an election poll, in a poll where we're trying to produce an outcome or a prediction about what an election is going to, to be, because you're not only trying to get an idea about vote choice that people are making, but you're trying to get an idea about the turnout model. And so waiting is very critical in those kinds of polls. So in 2002, um, Andrew Young was thinking about running for Senate, and so he came and did an interview here and in a lot of other places around Georgia. And I'm sure he said this in many venues, but when he was, when I was interviewing him, he made the comment, you know, desegregation and air conditioning made the South rise again. And, um, and you you specialize in Southern politics. You know, we've got this huge, it seems like this huge movement to the South and Southwest with the exception of California, people are moving out of California. Uh, and I don't know if you can consider California Southwest. They kind of are on their own. Is that making a change in how politics happens? Because it does seem like these warmer climates, the climates where there's more freedom in the way government's done. You know, you can you can give a million different reasons why people are moving from the Northeast and the Midwest to other places. But is it changing our politics? Well, for one thing, that, that pattern has been going on a long time. I mean, there's been population movement from the northeast and the Rust Belt to the south, to the southeast, and then to the west. And then more recently, you're right, there has been an outflow from California to places like Texas um, and from New Jersey and New York to places like Florida. So, yes... Uh, it can change the politics of, of a certain area, contextually speaking, depending on who's moving where. Um, now, a lot of times, if someone is fleeing another state because of high taxes or business regulations, uh, they're likely to be, more likely to be a Republican, obviously. So uh, if they're moving for other reasons, they might be a Democrat. So it, it depends on who's moving where. But yes, uh, in migration, uh, population movement patterns within the United States can affect politics in states, certainly. You know, this next election cycle will have a presidential race, and then there'll be, I think, a public service commission race that'll be statewide, and then everything else will be Congress and no senators. So it's going to be a very regional kind of general election. I mean, you will have a presidential, but and you'll have a PSC, but not the big draw you know, Senate races that we've had in the past. Uh, the governor is very clear and all the constitutional officers that they want to prove that Georgia is not a purple state, that Georgia is a red state. And he believes that his win in 2022, um, you know, shows that uh, there. 
what are the trends you're seeing? I mean, are we more like North Carolina and Virginia where we go back and forth, we're going to start going back and forth? Or are we still leaning to the to the more red side on things? I think we're, I think as a state, probably we're more center right than, say, Virginia. Certainly, I've got Virginia sort of in the light blue category at this point because they've been more consistently electing Democrats. I mean, of course, Youngkin got elected governor, but there's a question about whether that's just an aberration at this point. Um, so, you know, again, the, there were there were issues with candidate uh, the candidates running in the last Senate election. So I'd like to see a couple more election cycles before we can really make a call on whether we've definitively moved into sort of the purple category. Now, certainly I view the presidential election as being competitive. I mean, just based on what happened last time. And, of course, if Trump and Biden are running again, you know, I view that to be very competitive because we've seen a number of Republicans or enough Republicans, certainly in the last presidential election, either not vote for Trump um, or possibly vote for someone else um, to make a difference, you know, to where Biden actually won, obviously, by about 12,000 votes. So, you know, we'll, we'll see. Uh, some of this may be based on the candidates running more than the political complexion of the state, if that makes sense. It's local radio, and that's why you're listening. It's the Martha Zoller Show on AM 550 and FM 102.9 WDUN. We are so happy to welcome to the program uh, Congressman Andrew Clyde. Andrew, welcome back. Hey, Martha. Great to be with you. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank, thank you. I'm, I'm 12 days out from my knee replacement, and I am... <laughs> Like I said, sitting here with ice on my knee, doing great. <laughs> well, I certainly wish you all the best. I hope it goes exactly the way uh, it should and, and everything uh, gives you your mobility back. As, Amen. As Amen to that. All right. So a lot is happening, you know, right now. And I think there's a lot of noise around all the things that were happening. So I wanted to just give you the opportunity because you're spearheading a couple of initiatives uh, in the Congress. I'm assuming y'all are getting back like next week, but there's obviously work going on. So why don't you just give the folks the lay of the land first, and then we'll get into the issues. Well, thank you, Martha. Well, first off, you know, the, the greatest power that Congress has is the power of the purse, and that is funding or defunding something. And the apex of our power begins at the beginning of every fiscal year when we do the budget for that particular, for 2024. Um, and so I think it's very important that, that people, that American citizens get to decide who is our next uh, presidential, or who's going to be our next president, and not some Democrat um, prosecutor, some Democrat judge, or some Democrat jury uh, they don't get to decide that. We in American people, we get to decide that. And so my, what my amendment does is because what we're seeing right now is presidential prosecution, something that has never happened in our in the life of our nation. We've never had a prior president or a sitting president prosecuted uh, by the law for criminal activity. Uh, and so especially when this particular person is the uh, is the leading contender of the op of the opposing political party. So you have 
the Biden administration weaponizing the Department of Justice to prosecute uh, Donald Trump to try and throw him in jail and take him out of the, the election. And we can't allow that. So I'm introducing an amendment to defund the prosecution, not the investigation, but the prosecution until after the 2024 election. And that defunding both goes at the federal level and it would be federal funds to the state level as well for any state or local prosecutor that decides to prosecute a a major presidential candidate. Yeah, that was the question that I had, because in the case of Fulton County, which would be the one that while certainly you're concerned about what's happening around the country, uh, the one that's kind of in your purview of where you represent is the one that's in Fulton County. You don't represent Fulton County, but you're in Georgia. So what federal funds would be involved in that one as she's a Fulton County district attorney? Well, I think every solitary gets federal uh, funds. Anyway, everybody. Yeah, everybody gets federal funds. And so they're going to have to make a decision. You know, when this amendment passes, it gets into the uh, um, the Justice Department's appropriations bill and gets uh, signed into law for the budget for 2024. They're going to have to decide, all right, are we going to forfeit federal funds in order to do this? And uh, depending upon the level of federal funding that they get in every agency gets federal funds in some way, shape or form. But this would deny all federal funds. They're going to have to make that decision. And um, I think that that will be a pretty powerful motivator to cease the prosecution until after the election. Because as we have seen, this prosecution is purely political. It's a hundred percent political. And we're seeing judges schedule trial dates at important political times uh, for like Super Tuesday, what we're seeing. And, uh, you know, all through the election cycle to deny a, the leading contender, Donald Trump, to deny him the opportunity to be somewhere and to campaign. And so he's got to be in court. I mean, that's just that is clearly. I mean, it is, it's I mean, it's a Rubicon we should have never crossed. And um, it's you know, it doesn't matter what you think about the former president. It doesn't matter what you think about his tone or his tactics or. Um, any anything else, um, you know, if you if if it's if the thing is that you want to beat Donald Trump, you should beat Donald Trump at the ballot box. You shouldn't be using prosecutorial tools to try to beat a political opponent. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's banana republic uh, type of conduct. And that is not the United States of America. That is not a representative republic. Um, so. This is the way we have to do it, in my opinion. Uh, this is the strongest tool that we have, and we're going to use it. And, and you so know, far- it's, it's funny because, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of the former president. I have a lot of issues, and I'm looking in the Republican primary. I'm one of those ex-urban suburban women that is looking for another candidate. But I'm going to vote Republican and I'm going to support the nominee. Uh, Shondell Summer, who's in with me on Fridays, uh, you know, said when the indictment came down from Georgia that she, one, hoped that Donald Trump would win and, two, that this is looking a little bit like double jeopardy and piling on. So even among liberal attorneys, and Shondell's a liberal, you know, she's an honest mm-hmm. liberal. She's a, even among liberals, they're looking at this and saying, wait a minute, this is going, you know, a bit too far. And I think one of the challenges that we all have is, do we have the same standard for everyone? Now, here's a question I want to ask you, and I hope it will make you laugh, okay? Mm-hmm. 
we can't pass a budget on time. How do mm-hmm. you think we're going to be able to get this initiative through that has to do with budgeting? Well, uh, you're right. We can't pass a budget on time, uh, or at least it has not happened. Uh, but the Republicans committed to passing 12 individual appropriations, and we've 10 of them are through committee already. We've got two more to go. The Justice Department's one is uh, is one of the two that are left, and, and that's why this amendment is so important, because I can get it into the base bill of got the it. amendment and yes. come to the House floor. All right? Now, we've passed one um one appropriation already on the House floor, and, and we're going to be in session for 12 legislative days. We should be able to pass a number of them and get them uh, over to the Senate for the Senate to do uh, to do their work. But uh, I, I agree with you that, um, you know, we're facing a government shutdown, and, and it's, a, it's a real possibility because I do not intend to continue um, – Nancy Pelosi's policies or her spending levels into FY 2024. Uh, any continuing resolution is going to have to have significant policy changes in it and spending reductions on it. Uh, that's just, you know, that's being fiscally responsible, in my opinion. And, yeah. and that's why they gave Republican, that's why they gave us the majority. Well, and I know it's going to take a lot to turn this, you know, turn this ship. Uh, mm-hmm. But if we don't try, we won't do it. And we That's definitely right. won't do it if we don't try. And um, for me, it's it's the thing that's missing from the debate right now. Nobody's talking about this, you know, as far meaning budgets and that kind of thing, because they're getting distracted by a lot of other things. And and people aren't talking about the border at the level that I think they should either. And when I say people, I mean presidential candidates. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. The, the border is a critical part of this, which is why any continuing resolution uh, that has any hope of a of Republican support, total Republican support, has to include the border, you know, H.R. 2. All the Republicans voted for H.R. 2, uh, which was the Secure the Border Act. That has to be part of this. It has to be a change in the policy of the way that we administer our southern border, because without border security there we don't have national security and uh, we have seen millions and millions of illegals come across many of them criminals we've seen sex trafficking child trafficking you know uh, it, it's it's incredible the crime we've seen come across our southern border and it is hurting every solitary state in america so you know, that has I mean, to one last question and and then yeah. i'll i'll give you an opportunity to tell people how to get in touch with you there is this this thing that the Biden administration and people that support them are doing where don't believe your eyes. Okay. So they're telling you the economy's good. They're telling you the border's secure. They're telling you all of this. And they're saying that you, meaning the average citizen, there's something wrong with you that you don't see it their way. You know, this, this bizarro world that we live in has got to change because they're not telling us the truth, Andrew. Martha, they are flat out lying to us, and they think that we are gullible enough to believe their lies and to just go along with what they say. And that, honestly, that's one of the most difficult things of being a representative in Congress is listening to the lies and and, and seeing the fact that they're bold face about it and that they don't mind lying to you. But we're not going to believe those lies, and our legislation is going to deal with those lies and uh, that's the way it's got to be. That's why, you know, that's what I believe. That's why I'm up there. 
Well, Andrew Clyde, if people need help from you or if they can help you with this particular initiative, how can they do that? Well, they can go to Clyde.house.gov, and there's a place you can send us an email, or you can um, call the district office if you need any sort of help with a federal agency at um, 470-768-6520. You can follow us on on, uh, Twitter or on Facebook at rep underscore Clyde. And then um, also our newsletter is available, comes out every week and tells you what I'm doing, uh, where I've been, and talks about the major issues. So I love to stay in touch with the folks of the 9th District. Absolutely. Representative Clyde, thank you so much for being with us today, and thank you for what you're doing. Thank you, Martha. Great to be with you as always. To hear the full versions of last week's Martha Zoller shows, go to the podcast page at accesswdun.com, and you can follow me on social media at Martha Zoller. 